Hey everyone, this is Dr. Tran. Uh, welcome to the Malware Tech uh, podcast. With me today is uh, Malware Tech. Thank you for inviting me on again. <laughs> we have uh, returning uh, with us again, uh, Gab Smash. Today it's the Mermaid Tech podcast. Ooh, awesome! <laughs> and then also as our as our uh, fourth today, uh, we have a Hacks for Pancakes who's uh, joining us from uh, the Midwest. I didn't know it was Mermaid Day, but I brought a magic wand. If that helps, <laughs> it is Harry Potter weekend. Mm. <laughs> awesome! So today we're going to be talking uh, everything from the Tesla uh, ransomware attack or the one that didn't happen. Uh, based on viewer requests and, and, and demand, we're going to talk more about career advice and discussions and maybe even talk about some bad advice uh, and debunk some of that. And we're going to actually answer some questions that have been submitted ahead of time by our viewers. So starting off with the Tesla ransomware. So for those of you who haven't been following the, the news, um, basically, I think it was the FBI said they made some arrest or worked with a company to avoid a ransomware attack. And it came out that this company was Tesla. Um, the short of it was that someone tried to bribe an employee of this facility to install malware. And the person agreed, but instead of actually doing it, reported it and, and worked with the company and the FBI. And I think someone got arrested on this. So Interesting. I guess that's kind of the, the story of the new of the week. Yeah, um, and I think what makes this one most interesting is ransomware actors. They tend to either hack or fish their way into companies. But in this case, someone actually physically flew from Russia to Nevada to, I guess, find an employee in a bar or something. It sounded like they met in a bar and then offered him a million dollars to install malware onto the network which is a huge investment, both risk-wise and uh, financially, into getting access to this one company, which is probably the first time I've ever seen something like this with ransomware. You know what, though? That's dedication. I it mean, that, that's that's a good work ethic. <laughs> and uh, he will be dedicating the next few years of his life to a jail cell, I'm guessing. <laughs> Can you imagine how much money he is expected to make, though, to, to fly across the world during a pandemic and try to bribe somebody for like a million dollars, well, if he's actually gonna pay up to just install ransomware on these systems. Like, can you imagine what he thought the payday was gonna be? Did, How did this uh, person get into the US with all the travel restrictions? That's what I'm wondering as well. I mean, it's yeah, hard enough to get sure a we're visa. Letting people in. <laughs> yeah, we're letting well, people in. Well, it's hard in. enough to get a visa as a Russian to come to the state. So that yeah. I'm curious about as well. It's the new crime visa. Uh, I can't even get a new passport, but this guy can get it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Although we don't necessarily process. know when this is, because uh, yeah, indictments tend true. to take a couple yes. of years. So it might have been, been a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Still, I, I did find it interesting that um, it sounds like they had done this before, and he claimed he had made a 4.5 million payout uh, on some unnamed company, which didn't come out to say it was them. Um. Uh, I just found it just completely fascinating that someone put that much risk into trying to get malware onto a system. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, they must have been expecting to make so much money, probably way more than $4 million, because uh, because that would be kind of a loss at that point for the risk that they took. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I mean, can you imagine how much Tesla would have paid if they actually were able yeah. to bring As, their gigafactory to 
especially if this was right around when they had so much pressure to turn a profit and make sure their factories were efficient, that any hiccup like this, they would pay whatever it took to continue production. So I, yeah, you're right. In terms of timing, this was probably in the past. And um, I'll admit, I didn't read the details of the article. So I don't know if there was a time frame noted in any of the, the articles or other media. I seem to remember 2016. I don't know um, 100%, but I, I saw that somewhere. From an industrial perspective, like nothing in the articles I read shows that there was any likelihood that it was actually going to bring down their operations. Though. So that's a thing that I like, yeah, you introduce ransomware into the facility somewhere, but what network in the facility, where do you actually get it on there? Like, does it actually have an impact on your ability to produce automobiles? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I never saw specifics that really indicated to me that they would have been successful in shutting down operations to a point where they had to pay up. Well, I, um, like, I feel like the, the indictment was written by someone quite non-technical yeah. and there's a lot of confusion with terminology. But what, like reading between the lines, what I was able to get from it is it sounds like they didn't try to put ransomware directly onto the network, but they uh, essentially they put a, they wanted to put a Trojan on, which they would then use to deploy ransomware. Mm -hmm. so it was entirely possible that they were intending to uh, like pivot throughout the network and, and take down the entire, basically all of their computing systems rather than one or two isolated networks. But even then, like how much of the factory runs on machines that that are non-ICS that are something that ransomware access would be familiar with yeah, is the question. It's a hard call there whether they could have done it or not. Um, yeah, I, I really am interested in more de more details. Yeah, that's what it, that's kind of what I do. But like there weren't enough technical details in any of the reports that I read to say that they were thinking of, you know, attacking industrial systems specifically. I mean, yeah, it's disruptive to have ransomware or whatever on your on your controls like displays or you know on your business computers but that's not necessarily enough to to shut you down especially when you're using a lot of like discrete industrial systems i don't know yeah i i do wonder because there was uh recently the honda attack where they did actually manage to well it was a it was a safety precaution and it's like it's loss hmm. of control, loss of visibility. That's usually yeah. what gets that's usually when ransomware gets industrial operators to shut down is I can't see what's going on well enough. So as a safety precaution, I'm just gonna shut down. That makes sense. But I just the fact that I mean, maybe maybe this is to um to demonstrate that Tesla's security is either really strong and that this is the only way they could have gotten in, or they wanted to be so sure that they were going to get in that they didn't want to tip Tesla off by trying other methods. And they just went straight for this um, in-person, in real life uh, attack vector. I mean, think about like the fact that the employer was like, nah, and just got everyone involved too. I mean, that's some pretty good training. If, the if culture of security it. or company loyalty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we can't say that the next person down on the list would have, wouldn't have paid up or would have uh, wouldn't have taken taken the money, you know. So well, I think that's one thing about companies like Tesla uh, or or really any of the Elon Musk companies. People are loyal followers. They truly believe in the mission. They truly believe in in what they're doing. So I, I think for a whole company culture like that the social engineering aspect of it is extremely difficult because they're so loyal and truly believe in that mission. So 
maybe this wasn't that so smart of them to try it on a company that has a culture like this. That like brings me to the next question is why Tesla? These these ransomware gangs, they can they can fish fifty, a hundred different companies. They can hit all of them at once. They can like uh, gangs like Ryoka, Revil, and Maze, they're making hundreds of millions per year. Why did this gang want specifically Tesla? Like why did they go out of their way to get Tesla? I think maybe this is the one that this is the case that didn't fail. Imagine all the other ones where they have a foothold now and we don't know about because they haven't done anything yet. They're just they're just traversing laterally right now and just lying low. So we don't know what other organizations they have been successful. And this is just the one that failed. Yeah, I guess um, they only did mention one other attack in the recorded meeting. So who knows how many people they hit with this technique i mean it's probably a solid technique maybe not on tesla but uh, i know plenty of people who would take a million dollars to like just at the drop of a hat <laughs> I don't think well that, i mean I, I just don't think that people are quite as ubiquitously loyal to tesla as it might seem from the outside because they're they've been in the middle of like union fights and things there like that is i true. know they've got to have disgruntled employees it just happened to be this one was happy and was honest or ethical or whatever it was and, and or scared of getting caught <laughs> yeah. or scared of getting caught uh, and uh, and decided not to. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is a reliable tactic. Offer somebody a boatload of money and especially find the right person who's you can leverage because they're desperate for money. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a, it's a solid tactic. What I want to know is, did they pay in the last attack? Did they actually pay? Because <laughs> it's easy to say, I'll give you a million dollars if you do thing, and then they do thing, and it's like, wonder. okay, bye. How do, you, how, do you, how do you make somebody feel confident about that? You're asking them to commit a crime for them. Like, you, not even a crime that you directly benefit from, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll pay you some money, and you're putting yourself at risk. Like, man, that seems like a really poor life choice, but I, I don't know. I mean, if you're desperate... <laughs> Give them ten percent to start, and then ninety percent later. Give Maybe. them a little bit of a taste mm -hmm. of the of, of the, uh, the the riches. Or find somebody then... who's really desperate for money. You know, like whose house is about to get foreclosed on or something. I mean, it's the same techniques that intelligence agencies use. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Is did they did they do any reconnaissance and did they like pick out this employee specifically because I don't know he was posting about money issues on Facebook or something, yeah. or were they just did they just pick anyone? The article I read said that the employee had, um, he spoke Russian and he, I believe, was originally from Russia and that he had a working relationship with whoever was there from Russia. Oh, I didn't see that. Mm, interesting. I, okay, interesting. so it was a previous relationship potentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they built it on trust, which makes a little bit more sense as to. Apparently, not that much trust. But as far as the value too, I mean, think about, I don't know, just having a foothold in Tesla. I guess there are so many other things that that company might be doing or that they might end up venturing into, or um, maybe they're, you know, trying to eventually get to Elon and see what he has going on. And he's got a ton of different ventures. I mean, I don't, you don't know how those things are connected. So maybe they're just trying to find the weakest and, link. Yeah. And there may be, there may be, uh, maybe they, there were even employees or connections. I mean, I, I would doubt it, but outside of Elon himself, but be, with SpaceX, because mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of valuable things over on that side too. But it's not always like 
this the super conspiracy 40 chess thing like i mean mm-hmm. let's where do all the crypto scams come from right now like it's all people emulating elon musk like it's it's all tesla related that's the, it's it, in our brains it's become like associated with money like tesla mm-hmm. is tesla is where the money is elon musk is, is the rich guy like true yeah yeah I would think even currently there would be an even bigger target because, I mean, that whole CEO list just came out, too. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it, but, like, Elon was miles ahead of every single other person on that list. So if that's not a target, I don't know what is. Uh, I think something else that people don't forget about is you can't look at Tesla as an auto manufacturer necessarily. Yes, that's the product that they make. But they have a lot of other intellectual property that maybe is not useful they, to hackers, but influence. Aren't they listed on NASDAQ? They're basically a tech company. Well, yeah, they are a tech company, but even then, like, what is their asset? Think about it. They have, uh, with, with the autopilot data, what type of resolution they have on driver behavior, roads, traffic conditions. I mean, they are... They're kind of doing what Google did with mapping the world. They're mapping our roads and our driving behaviors and situations and scenarios in traffic. So imagine feeding that into, I don't know, some type of AI. Oh, no, sorry, I said the buzzword, AI oh, machine no. learning. <laughs> Everyone mark um, that off your bingo cards. <laughs> uh, imagine, imagine feeding that into something like that, like what you can do, the power that you would have and the disruption that you can create in, in, in the transportation industry. I think it goes back to what Leslie said, is there is no 4D chess 100-year game plan. It's mostly just someone wanted some money. And you could do the really complicated technical thing of trying to break into Tesla's network. You know, Maybe you get a phishing email through whatever, and people are getting better at catching that. Or you could get a plane. He could go find a dude who speaks Russian and he could be like, hey, bro, you want some money? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just like the Twitter thing back a while ago. You know, like, yeah, it could be anything, but like, that's that's pretty simple. Like, the simplest explanation. I, I think yeah, I saw true. within like a few minutes of the hack being announced, there were some some pretty prominent security experts having takes on what if this was China? It sounds like a Russian conspiracy to me. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, man. <laughs> Sometimes it's just opportunity. Uh, it's just I mean, I, I get that this one has a has a little bit of sex appeal to because you're flying someone across the world to do this and it's in person and, and it's kind of new and, and maybe not new, but it's just unusual. So maybe that's why it's spinning up people's imaginations. Some James Bond shit. But there was actually a case recently where an actual spy got caught doing actual spy things and it got no interest in the the InfoSec community. It's like when some 15-year-old script kitty hacks Twitter, it's like, oh my God, it's, it's Russia and China. But when it actually is Russia and China, everyone's like, meh. You mean the kind, one? Spy things are kind of uh, lengthy and verbose and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> they're also boring because they're not yeah. as cool. They're, they, they're, they don't they don't talk about like oh tech company gets breached, like data gets stolen. I mean tech. I'm assuming you're referring to the one where they social engineered the spy to admitting to the crime. Is that the one you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Where he was, he went to work for the FBI as a as a double agent for China. No, I thought that I thought what happened was there was someone spying an undercover FBI agent pretended to be someone working for that government 
reached out and said, hey, we want to talk to you and make sure you're happy doing what you're doing. And almost like a customer satisfaction yeah, survey yeah, yeah. type no, that's, thing. That's the same case. Yeah. Okay. It was, he was working, he used to be CIA and he leaked uh, yes, info from the CIA. I remember that, yeah. Then he went over to the FBI because like he retired from the CIA. Then he was like, shit, like I don't have any more info to leak. So he went and applied to work for the FBI. And then someone, I think an undercover FBI agent came into his office and did essentially what you said, a customer satisfaction survey on, are you happy with how much we're paying you to be a double agent? And the guy was like, mm. and like here, here's 2000 extra. And then he like straight up admitted to what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if you guys remember the, uh, the consulate in, in, uh, was it Houston or Dallas? One in Texas that, that got closed. Um, there were emails where there were people who were leaking information from companies. They were sending emails to the consulate with their work email asking for advice and, hey, how do I get them off my tail or something like that? It was hilarious. <laughs> so, so who has monitoring signatures on their email right now? People sending, <laughs> sending documents to the consulates. Um. <laughs> it's amazing. We think spies are like super crafty and intelligent and like most of the time they just use email and it's like the guy who got caught by the fbi there's no way they just went in with nothing and he confessed they probably had intercepted his emails set up a meet and made it like backed up their agent as being an agent of the prc yeah you, you don't think about all the logistics that go into doing something like that like tremendous hours and hours and hours of logistics of, of surveillance and processing through documents and it's just got to be the most boring thing in the world, a lot like the jobs that we do. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, with Spycraft, uh, I mean, it's fascinating how different countries have um, counteracted Spycraft. It, I, one, of, one, of, one of the favorite stories that I read was how uh, the, the KGB, they were able to identify CIA agents in Moscow. Be and, and the belief, uh, they had this idea that humans are creatures of habit. So it's about looking for patterns. And what they discovered and figured out was uh, every so often a CIA operative would get rotated out of the country and a new one would come in. Well, what the Americans were doing, they were putting the, the agents in the same apartment time after time. <laughs> so, That's not the one like that that I heard, but it's equally awful. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically they figure it out that, hey, whoever's living in this apartment is a CIA operative. Dude, people like come up with these conspiracies, like the deep state controlling the government. And then the reality is that it's like, we've put all our CIA agents in the same apartment and the enemy now knows they're all CIA. And let's be realistic. All the countries know that all the other countries are spying on them. You know, it's like everybody knows. Yeah. I, I'm sure many, many countries know, have great lists of the spies that are currently operating in their in their borders. Like, there's, there's a lot of open secrets there, I think. Um, yes. I mean, China got the entire OPM database. So yeah. they're, they're probably yeah. <laughs> a little ahead. Well. <laughs> so, I mean, going back to your people not caring about espionage though i mean do you think that that to me i feel like the whole intelligence counterintelligence news area is kind of important to some of what we see in information security especially when you're looking for patterns and um you know people to attribute different things to yeah if you're not following national security pundits on on twitter and you're following a bunch of infosec people you're really missing out 
because there's so much context there about why people are hacking people and, you know, why mm-hmm. states are hacking people and why individuals are being drawn into to doing illegal hacking. You know, all of that has to do with, with uh, geopolitics and national security. Yeah, the, the best way of knowing what type of industry or assets an adversary is going to go after, just read their 20, 30 year plan for their country. What are the major things they're investing in? If they're investing in, I don't know, a social sec- developing a social security system for their country or energy policy, they're probably going to go after those industries because they want a leg up. They So, I mean, if you followed politics, it, it helps you proactively identify whether you're going to be a target or not or what assets they're going after. They're a isolated country with no extradition and they need lots of money. Guess what they're going to do? <laughs> they're going to keep <laughs> stealing money. I did find that one quite wild. Actually, I think that should be our next segment. I think we missed it for the past two podcasts, but uh, uh, North Korea are doing ransomware again. This time it's not <laughs> It's not WannaCry. It's not a, a failed piece of shit. They actually have a, um, uh, they're doing this kind of corporate targeted ransomware attacks like a lot of the the crime groups are doing, except the difference is with North Korea is that money doesn't go to cocaine and hookers, it goes to nuclear weapons, which is somehow worse. And that's the question again that we've had pop up over the last couple months of is can a country be held liable for paying ransom in the cases where the money is going to like North Korea's nuclear program or a, tor- a terrorist organization that goes out and kills a bunch of people? Um, whether whether we can start to hold companies liable for paying up if it has that kind of impact. Um, and I think that's a, cu- a question we're going to struggle with for a long time. Well, I did notice when they sanctioned Evil Corp, which is the Russian gang behind uh, the BitPayment ransomware, they actually the way they wrote the sanctions there was a gap that basically allowed companies to pay the ransom because they didn't want to risk having to like fuck up their own companies for paying ransoms because they had no other choice yeah i i i personally am on the side of yes you should not pay the ransom it's funding crime nuclear weapons whatever but when companies have no choice then it's like what can you do? Are you going to really let your own companies and economy collapse because some some, some silly law? Back up? Yeah, because <laughs> then the, the same criminals have the potential to you know destroy your companies using the exactly. same tactics. So. And then that's going to be their main goal because there are plenty of countries yeah. that want to see the U.S. fail. Yeah, it's it's a tough question, but yeah, you really got to think of if you're if you're going out and buying cyber insurance, it's so detached, it's so detached from what's actually what's actually happening, but. If you get ransomed by like uh, something related to like ISIL or like you know, terrorist organizations, and uh, you pay up, next bomb that goes off that's paid for through their money, uh, you had a part in, in providing that money to them. I mean, that's that's there. That's part of the the ethical holistic picture. Like, but this philosophy of you know not negotiating with terrorists, not paying with ransom, it's a very American thing because other countries. In mm-hmm. cases of kidnapping, they pay the ransom. They just pay up. Mm-hmm. They pay up because they look at it as their citizens' lives are worth whatever it is to get them back. Now, it's arguable long-term is it worse off because you're funding these terrorist groups. You're funding these, these rogue yeah. nations that are going to kill more people long-term. So I think it's a philosophical discussion. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. But you know, just there, there's a, an American perspective and a European perspective, which is very different from one another. 
and a lot of those Americans do though right because they, they still pay the ransoms they just find a way to do it that is as direct as like they don't want to have their hands potentially paid. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're standoffish over here um, or, the, or the u.s will send in like seal team six to get you out <laughs> there's that yeah. because if you think about i mean you look at germany for example germany they will absolutely pay the ransom and and germany is very they will generally turn a blind eye even to selling weapons to certain nations or, or, or kind of let it go through an intermediary. I mean, the U.S. with like um, the, the, you know, ITAR, um, I forget what it stands for, but basically it's an arms export um, regulation. It's very strict about tracing where goods go, um, especially weapons. And it, that's why the U.S. does not export much military equipment um, or, or weapons at all, while other European nations, they're a little bit laxer, and that's why their weapons end up in all corners of the world. Complicated question. And it has a lot to do with historically, like the, the terrorist incidents that have occurred in that country and, you know, kidnappings, uh, hostage taking, hijackings, things like that. All those historical pieces influence how countries respond to things like that. Mm -hmm. So. Well, on a slightly lighter note, a lighter tone, uh, and speaking of plane hijackings, did you, do you guys remember a couple <laughs> of years ago when there was a plane that was hijacked and was flying over Switzerland? Is that a lighter Swiss note? <laughs> yes. yes just hear me <laughs> okay. out. Just hear me no out. feeling so, it. <laughs> just, just hear me out. Basically, the hijackers just wanted asylum. They weren't trying to do anything bad. They weren't trying to kill people. They wanted to hijack the plane to fly somewhere so they can get asylum. Well, the plane was flying through Swiss airspace, and Switzerland's not that big, but uh, I think it was during a lunch break when the plane was flying over Switzerland. So the Swiss Air Force is like, hey, this is our lunch break. We're not scrambling our fighters. And then France had to scramble their fighters to intercept the plane. But it was just, I remember I was in Switzerland when this happened. It was just hilarious. Like, it was like a big joke about, oh, the Swiss, they, it's lunchtime. We can't be bothered <laughs> to scramble our fighter jets. On a lighter note, hijacking. <laughs> <laughs> and the Swiss respect their mealtimes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do too. Don't call me during dinner. It's the same thing, right? Like, don't call me during dinner. Don't call the family during dinner. We're sitting at the table. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Swiss were made fun of for that situation, but there, there, there actually is an agreement with neighboring countries for the neighboring air forces to take care of situations like this because Swiss airspace is so small. If you're in a jet fighter and you turn on your afterburners, you're flying across the entire country, I think in like a minute or something like that. So Tech, we, we had a viewer once ask you, you know, what's the surf like in California compared to your hometown? Because I think everyone kind of knows you're a surfer and it's kind of obvious. I think you have two surfboards behind you right now. So. How can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, California is known as kind of the birthplace and the home of surfing. But surprisingly, the surf is actually bigger where I'm from. The south, uh, southwest coast of England gets the big Atlantic swell. So you have the, uh, the hurricanes that just come throughout kind of August to November. And the surf can get up to, uh, I've seen 35 feet, like 35 foot waves uh, in the area where I'm from. And the biggest I've I've gotten, there was an amazing storm uh, a year back in LA, and that was about 15, 20 foot. 
and that was a uh, once in a lifetime well once in a few years sort of thing so yeah consistently the surf is actually bigger in england but it seems like the water is warmer here and the waves are more consistent so there so you have more more often there is surf in california but when there is surf in england the waves are way way bigger oh nice nice yeah makes sense so also i mean since you're out that way how how is all the fire stuff going <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um we we had a lot of fires the past few weeks um uh it was it was a heat wave and the second the heat wave starts things just start to spontaneously combust it's it happens every year around this time um it's cooled down a bit there was a bit of rain so now they're out but there was a good few days when the air was just it was not it you would go outside and it would just it would smell so bad and it would burn your throat and it it finally got people to wear masks so there was that oh that's good that's a positive it takes setting the world on fire to get people to wear masks like <laughs> screw the pandemic also i have a, i do have a mask to show i'm really excited about it. my mom made this for me but it's a ruth bader ginsburg mask Oh, I love it. And it says, fight for the things you care about. And I'm like, this is the best thing that I think I've ever gotten. Right? I love her That's so your much. Hair. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I love her so much. She's a national treasure. Leslie, so any natural disasters out by you uh, where, where yeah, you're living these we days? we had the Derrico a few weeks ago, and it smashed a bunch of stuff up. Not as bad as it did to some of the farm fields in the Midwest, but... It was a big mess. I had to lug very large pieces of tree out of my driveway and off my roof and stuff. Mm, ouch. Did it, hit, did it damage anything? Uh, yeah, it, it wrecked a bunch of people's roofs. It dropped trees in a bunch of people's houses. It, it was uh, it was pretty bad. Um, and then for the farmers, it, it, pulled, it uprooted a lot of corn and destroyed a lot of fields. So there's going to be problems this year. Mm. Wow, that bad that's going to cause a ripple effect in the, it's the gonna food cause supply chain? It's definitely going to cause a ripple effect in agriculture. So it's very unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like disaster after disaster this year. It's been pretty pretty horrendous. And now the, the hurricane hitting Texas and Louisiana. So it reminds you of that Swift on security joke about how you have never gone more than a day in your life without eating something that was corn. <laughs> in america because they make it's everything true. with corn <laughs> it's true we tried really hard i chat with swift and security a lot and a few of us were trying to think of anything anything we could think of that like didn't come out of our own garden that we were eating that didn't have corn in it it's i was really surprised gross. to learn that beef here is they feed it yeah, on it's corn, corn fed and it, it makes the beef taste completely different. And you realize you're still eating corn, even when you're eating <laughs> animals. Yep. Well, think about it. There's something else. Even when you're driving around, there's ethanol in mm -hmm. gasoline, especially yes. in California. So even your day-to-day -day in taking an Uber or something, you're, you're mm -hmm. consuming corn in some way. The U.S. Yeah. just runs on corn. It really does. I mean, I feel bad for people. There's got to be people with, like, corn sensitivity. Like, <laughs> what do you what do you eat right i mean that's like people that are like allergic to i mean gluten-free is like it's rough because a lot of things do have like wheat in it but my best friend is allergic to meat she got bit by a tick i think it's the long <gasps> yeah. story yeah yeah and she's now allergic to like almost all meat and she yeah. likes meat too and it really sucks it's so crazy is seafood okay at least 
I think she can have most seafood and like wild game. She can eat like deer, but she can't eat she can't eat any like processed normal things you'd buy at the grocery store. Yeah, it makes people really, especially sensitive to ground beef and just like any kind of beef. It's really like a bizarre thing. (laughs) Don't don't get bit by ticks. It's not a not a terrified of ticks. Honestly, like between that and Lyme disease, I am like paranoid. Like if I ever go like hiking or something, I do like a full body like everywhere with the toxic deep. Yeah, yep. You'll see me wearing like twelve layers. That'd be like a day. <laughs> I, I don't think you'd survive the LA hiking experience. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's too hot. It's too there's hot. There's hiking here. in LA. Oh yeah. Oh, there's actually I, I mean, we have a lot, lot of mountains. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, it's, yeah, it's very mountainous in LA, That's but awesome. the problem is it's basically a desert climate. So you're hiking up a mountain in in 90 degree weather, and it's I've done it, and it is oh. it is intense. Wow. I mean, I, I recommend fun. it because it is very beautiful, but you have to be prepared. Uh, so sunscreen, electrolytes, that's something um, I had to get I've used to. You can see I've never tried it. But... <laughs> <laughs> but electrolytes is something that people always forget and don't think about because wherever they may be from, it may be more humid. But in because it's a desert, you not only lose water, but you lose electrolytes. So when I first moved to California, I always got headaches, like the type of headaches where you feel like you're dehydrated, but drinking water didn't help. And then I realized it's, I'm losing electrolytes. And now um, when I do do outdoors, uh, go do outdoorsy things in California, I'll bring electrolyte tablets with me. And I've, I've not had a dehydration headache since then, uh, because now that's just part of my regiment when, when I do something outside. It, it, is, it is a weird adaptation of, of habits I had to introduce. When I first went to Nevada, I um, I I sweated a lot, and when my shirt dried out, I could actually see the salt deposits on it from because you you sweat the sodium out of your pores, and you can actually see the salt deposits on your clothes after like an intense workout or walking or whatever. It's crazy. Speaking of advice, um, what type of bad infosec advice? Have you guys heard of before that you guys want to try to debunk? Because I think that's also a popular demand from from our viewers. Is what is what are some examples of bad things that people should not listen to? Um, I guess I could start with answering a, another viewer question we got, which fits into that, and that's VPNs. So I'm I'm not a fan of VPNs. Essentially, you you basically your ISP can spy on your internet connection. So in order to stop that, some people install VPNs. But the thing with a VPN is it just routes your traffic through the VPN. So now the VPN's ISP can spy on your connection and also the VPN provider. So you're mitigating one risk of your ISP spying on you with the hope that A, your VPN doesn't spy on you and B, your VPN's ISP does not spy on you. And I, I don't agree with VPNs. I don't see a purpose in them for privacy. There are some edge cases, like if you know your VPN is in a country that won't spy on you and you 100% know the provider isn't. But in the in without that knowledge, I just think that user VPN advice is bad advice because you are not telling people all the risks and they're just replacing one risk with two equally great risks. So uh, I think that's my, my bad advice is that you always use a VPN. 
which I guess I should also add on with someone asked about if you're using public Wi-Fi, obviously you don't want someone to be intercepting the Wi-Fi, but most banking apps, most websites are using SSL now and it will verify the certificate. So even if someone is intercepting the Wi-Fi, they cannot do anything with that. So you can, you can go and do your banking on the Starbucks Wi-Fi and you do not need to worry about if someone is intercepting the Wi-Fi. If they replace the SSL cert, you will get an alert. Mm -hmm. As long as the site has the green padlock or whatever the browser uses, it's fine. Yeah, and that, that's, that's actually the key thing, that padlock, and also not clicking through the warning when your browser says, hey, there's something wrong with the cert. Don't proceed, and you click proceed anyways. That's, there's a mm. reason why it's warning you. But that's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Ignore the, uh, the security advice. I don't like it when people tell me not to do things, so I'm going to click on the link that says to go anyway. <laughs> that's bad security advice. There we go. That, there's gaps entry. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the VPN stuff, it drives me crazy. And I touched on this last week, I think, but like, there's so many commercials out there on TV, like NordVPN, you need a VPN. And I'm like, people ask me all the time. Like I was sitting next to this guy on an airplane one time and he was a pilot. So I was asking him all these plane questions and annoying the crap out of him. And he was like, can I ask you tech questions? And I was like, sure. And that was the first question he asked. He was oh, like, no. I, he was whenever like, someone's like, can I ask you tech questions? I'm like, oh my God, I shouldn't I was, have said anything. I mean, I was like, sure. Cause I was literally asking him like, how do I land a plane and all this stuff? <laughs> he was like, can he <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, you can ask me tech questions. But yeah, he was like, how do you feel about VPNs? Like, do I need one? And I was like, I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> because <laughs> if you feel that you need one, you might want to check yourself. I don't know, like, so, like, uh, just as a broader picture of that, like, everybody trying to sell security stuff that people don't need, but they're not ready for yet, like, not just VPNs, like, yeah, there's a place for VPNs in the corporate world, of course, um, and there are a place for a lot of security technologies in edge cases and certain models and stuff, but just, like, these marketing campaigns from vendors trying to sell every product to everybody, even when they don't know what computers are on their network or what their network is mm -hmm. laid out like, and they haven't done basic like security hygiene. Like everybody's trying to sell these magic black boxes that are going to do security for people. And they can never do security for you unless you know how your network's laid out and what you've got out there and what your threat model is and stuff. You need to know all that stuff first. And I don't know, I'm just really, really sick of even like, I'll like rant about things like VPN on Twitter and all my friends who like sell VPN get really, really mad. <laughs> and like, uh, but these people don't need them. Um, they're not ready to use them for any rational risk modeling purpose. It's like well, it's a, big a lot issue. of technologies. Yeah, a big issue is, I, and I've got these too, is uh, Nord and I think a couple of other VPNs, they're, they're reaching out to people in security and saying, hey, we if you... If you push our VPN, we will give you 20% of all the profits. So a lot of these people, they don't give a shit about VPNs, but they have the financial incentive. So you've got a <laughs> bunch of infosec experts that are pushing these VPNs and everyone's thinking, wow, the, the experts say we need them, so we need them. But, the but we're not experts, that... so no one's going to listen to us anyways. Uh, I don't like... have any. Well, he's a blue check, so he, he can get over it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any CVEs or a blue check, so... Yeah, we're, we're, we're not good marketing. My we're not good check marketing. is my, my only qualification. And uh, a funny story of how I actually got it is I applied for the blue check when you could apply for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they rejected me. They're like, you're not important enough. I was like, <laughs> fair enough. I guess I'm not. 
And then um, when the WannaCry thing happened, someone made an account pretending to be me and we're like, hey, I stopped WannaCry. If you want to donate money to me for stopping WannaCry, because apparently that's the same thing that I would do. And they uh, set out like a crowdfunding campaign pretending to be me to let people donate to me for stopping WannaCry. And people thought it was actually me. So they started like donating money to this random scammer. And at that point, Twitter was like, okay, we're going to have to verify you because there are like multiple accounts with my name at this point. So, so now I'm a certified expert in everything, which is great. <laughs> well, Leslie, I think, you know, what you brought up is the, you know, the bad advice is all the stuff the vendors are pushing. I mean, you're yeah. absolutely right. Vendor, companies who can't, don't even understand their own environment and don't know what even what they're trying to protect should not be going out to buy product. If you can't articulate your environment, like what, what you need to protect, you shouldn't be buying product. You need to get your shit in order first. So unless they're like asset discovery products, that is the only thing you should be buying until you know what's in your environment. Like you should be buying services and technologies that help you understand your environment. That's how you do security. Otherwise you're just sticking duct tape on little leaks all over the place. Well, I think even, even with these tools, asset tools, you need to understand like how are assets getting into your organization? Yeah. Can is there actually a procurement process, or people literally just going and using a, any random person with a corporate card can buy buy mm -hmm. a cloud yeah. instance or buy a server and put it under their desk? I mean, you need to kind of understand that because otherwise you're gonna have blind spots with how you deploy the tools. Yeah. Even. Yep. So stop spending a bunch of money on random cool sales pitches at like Black Hat. Like start paying attention to the basics. Whether it's personal security or corporate security or whatever, just just stop. Stop believing all the sales pitches for magical black boxes that are going to fix everything. Like <laughs> They're not going to fix everything. You are going to use tools to fix things, and you have to understand what's going on to do that. I think it's really important in the cloud realm of things, too, because that's been my role for the last couple of months is doing cloud engineering, but like so many of your providers have that shared support. You need to know what you're responsible for and you need to know what they're responsible for. And if you don't know that you're in a world of trouble because you're either wasting resources over protecting yourself or you are leaving a bunch of holes. So I think with a lot of things moving virtually, we have to be even more cognizant of um, what we have and how we're using it. Yeah, there, there are some businesses where they literally don't do anything about security because like, oh, it's it's in the cloud. The cloud provider says they have security. I'm I'm fine. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> it's just like face palm. I mean, they me. literally will say, hey, we don't need the security team in this to, to work with us because our cloud providers providing security. We don't need you involved. And, and trying to have that conversation for someone who's not tech literate or understands the cloud, but puts their entire application stack in the cloud is is interesting for sure ah yes the security <laughs> the nebulous security the security <laughs> it's like the wizard of oz behind the curtain <laughs> well it's a little padlock right they just need a little padlock icon and then they're, they're secure i i remember when i was um uh applying for a mortgage uh I had a feeling I wasn't going to get the answer I wanted, but just, just for shits and giggles, I asked them, oh, do you guys have like some type of independent security um, attestation or certificate for your web application? Because I'm submitting all my stuff, like my tax return, my social security. I'm just kind of curious. I'm sure they didn't have anything, but I asked anyways. 
the response I got back was absolutely hilarious. I, I didn't even respond because I just didn't want to argue with him. But he said, oh, our system is 100% secure. It's unhackable. Your data is safe. I was like, oh, my God. And I just let it go, whatever. But did it have the McAfee padlock on it? That's how you really tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on their website, the little yeah, McAfee. like the little thing you, when you get like an SSL certificate from certain providers, they give you a little padlock to put on your website. And uh, yes, yeah. No, they did not even have that. Oh no! Wow. I mean, I was familiar enough with this company where I kind of knew it was okay, uh, but I, I think most organizations are just okay. So. I wasn't putting myself at greater risk. Well, when I did a security clearance, it was it was uh, when they had moved everything online and I'm filling in my entire life story into a web form. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is terrifying. And uh, like typically security clearance forms have been offline. They're, they're paper forms that they actually send someone to your house to deliver but they had moved it completely into this online system that you just have to hope for the best as you, you enter your info. You, you, you think the paper might be more secure, but just imagine the back end, what they're doing with those papers. They're probably manually typing it into that same web application. Now they've just exposed it to the internet. They're <laughs> sitting on someone's desk while they all go for a lunch break, you know? I mean, I'm okay with that because the, like the, the, the um, at least in the UK, it is intelligence agencies that do the vetting. So you know they're sat in an office block in one of the most secure buildings in the UK versus going to some web form somewhere that who knows where that's hosted. Everybody and wants I, to do everything digitally. Yeah. <laughs> like Everyone I love wants a paper digital files. experience. Like yeah. who's breaking into an office to steal a bunch of papers these days? Like no one. Oh, uh, you'll be surprised. <laughs> you'll be surprised. You would be surprised. People You'd do still do that. Yeah. So <laughs> surprised, especially when it comes to healthcare. Um, you know, looking at the top healthcare breaches, I think the data I had was from 2018, so I need to update it. But like t at least two of the top breaches were physical. Like someone said, mm -hmm. like broke into an office and stole a bunch of patient files. And um, you know, someone else set an office on fire, I think, which was just laptops wow. getting Crazy. stolen out of cars too. That's a big one. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's not like the same risk. I remember I worked for, I had an incident a long time for a customer where a, a laptop was like issued to an employee and it got stolen out of their car in, in another country uh, in Asia. And uh, it popped up eventually in the ER. It checked into the internet and inter interface of the ER. And obviously with EDR, you can see everything that's happening on the computer. And they monitored it for months because they couldn't like get the legal jurisdiction to send somebody to go get it. It was like in somebody's house, like it was like get the police involved in another country, but, but they could still watch everything that was happening on it. They locked it down and removed its access to everything, but they kept the EDR in so they could kind of see what was happening. And if somebody's kid had gotten the laptop and they were using it for their classes and like they knew exactly who it was because it was all their schoolwork with their name on it and their college wow. papers and stuff like, Somebody had taken, stolen this laptop, not reimagined it or anything, not done any anti-theft stuff and just handed it to their kid to use for their college classes. And then it was just checking into EDR all the time. Like, But I mean, if they hadn't caught it and locked it down and removed everything sensitive, then I'd imagine what kind of reach you could have from something like that. In, in Japan, um, the regulations are very, very strict about physical assets. Even if 
a machine has full disencryption, uh, it's a reportable event to the regulator. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing you have to navigate. But the funny and an interesting thing is in Japan, 90% of lost laptops get returned. Wow. Because usually they're because they're lost and someone finds it and then wow. they see the asset tag and then they return it. It's just like a bizarre phenomenon that where people so are just nice. very honest and polite. It's like there's a laptop here there was one of the cases i remember um talking to one of the security team members there he said it was really funny where there was an employee who was out drinking on a friday night and he was waiting at a traffic light and he put his bag down uh you know waiting for the traffic light and then when the light turned green and he went to go pick up his bag it was gone and it was like oh crap i got stolen it turned up at the police station because someone saw a bag that was just sitting at the corner. It was a really crowded intersection uh, corner. So someone saw an unintended bag. So he grabbed it and took it to the police station. <laughs> Do you think the Tesla guy would have returned his laptop? Because I think he would have. <laughs> you go, Tesla guy. You Possibly. go. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was just a, such a hilarious story. And, and, and it was just funny that when they cited that metric that 90% of lost laptops get stolen, I was amazed. Cause that doesn't, that never happens in the States or anywhere else. That's cause they sell them. Like people rarely, yeah. like they just will find a laptop and say, oh, free money. I can go sell this. It's why a lot of these things that get reported as security breaches, they're not actually someone stealing the laptop with the data on it. They just want to re-image it or maybe even not re-image it and just. Can't their kid to do their homework on. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's yeah. just a whole economy. I bet there's a huge market for those right now during COVID because, you know, if everybody needs a laptop right now to do their remote schoolwork. Like, I, I can't even imagine how some people are having to buy them on, on the cheap, you know, and where those are coming from. Well, even there, there um, I mean, I, I don't think it's the case anymore, but uh, I think like in the April, May timeframe, there were supply chain issues with laptops, too, because <laughs> many of them were are manufactured in China. Um, and one of our business units they had um, basically like 1,500 laptops on back order and they couldn't issue laptops to new hires. So people couldn't work even though they started because of supply chain issues. Wow. Just like the toilet paper. Yeah, it was, it was like toilet, <laughs> toilet paper and laptops. Yeast for baking bread. <laughs> there is or, or still... flour for baking bread. There's still a toilet is. paper shortage. Like yeah. every time I go to the store, like you can barely find toilet paper and paper towels still. It's and so I'm just funny because like, there isn't a shortage. The shortage is because that people thought there would be a shortage, so they panic bought it and then actually caused the shortage. It's like mm-hmm. a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there's also a supply chain difference between the office buildings and yeah, and yeah, commercial houses. and residential. Yeah, they're packaged toilet paper. differently. They're sold differently. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I had no issue getting toilet paper because I just went on staples.com and ordered commercial toilet paper. <laughs> it's, it's really awful. And now I've got to go through all like 32 rolls of it and stuff. So, ooh. yeah. Single yeah. Well, what, what I ended up doing oh, was I, I started giving them away too. I literally yeah. just left a pile in, in, in my building's lobby. It's like, hey, free, free, take one if you need it. Um, That's nice. So, I, yeah, I, I, I had, it was like a 64 pack. So, there was no way I was going to use all of it. So you were the one panic buying toilet paper, which is why I couldn't get any. <laughs> no, I was buying commercial toilet paper. There was no shortage there. And I put in one order. It, it just happened to be a box of 64 rolls. Did you hear how that actually supposedly started? No. 
So um, in Hong Kong, they run out of masks. Um, I think China ran out of masks as well, like face masks for, for COVID. So people started making mask filters out of toilet paper. You would take like four, four sheets and you'd fold it over and you could make a rudimentary mask filter. And that caused a run on toilet paper. So there was a toilet paper shortage. So then people in Australia heard about this toilet paper shortage on the news, which purely related to Hong Kong. And then they were like, oh, no, there's a toilet paper shortage in Hong Kong due to coronavirus. Somehow coronavirus is leading to less toilet paper. So we need to go and buy all the toilet paper. So they bought up all the toilet paper. And now there's a shortage in Australia. And then Americans saw it. And they're like, oh, there's a toilet paper in <laughs> shortage in Australia because of coronavirus. So we need to go and buy all the toilet paper. And suddenly you have the whole world just buying toilet paper in bulk. And they have so basically no idea it why went viral. It. Yeah. And like the, the reason why it had run out in Hong Kong was not translatable to anywhere else because people were not making makeshift masks outside of Hong Kong. So all of these people are just buying toilet paper and they have no idea why. You know what really kills me though is like our priorities they're so bad like people are like oh i'm not gonna wear a mask because it goes against my rights and i don't <laughs> think that i don't think that COVID is real but i'm also going to buy all of the toilet paper just in case i can't wipe my butt thinking about the same thing yeah, just well, yeah. so all those also these people who are talking about their freedoms i'm like i get that but guess what the establishments they're going into is private property buddy so if the owner no asks you to wear a mask you're wearing a mask or it's trespassing it's been fantastic like people are, here. People are getting really blase here, like, and it's it's bad because we were doing pretty well, but people are starting to. I went to a garage sale yesterday, and everybody's looking at me funny for wearing a mask. I'm like, I'm keeping this mask on my face. I don't know. In California, they'd started making up like fake federal agencies that were like inspecting companies to say like, oh, you can't make this person wear a mask because they have health issues. <laughs> And I'm that from is the such federal bullshit. Oh my god! Responsible for that. It's the most California thing I've ever heard. It's been <laughs> it's been good here. I mean, I'm in Connecticut, which has been like the good the yeah, good you guys spot. Have been great. Yeah, but I mean, it's been um, well. First, like our governor was super on top of things, which is good. But we, it's been super mandatory everywhere. And I mean, they started opening things back up. Like they opened our gyms back up like two months ago now. And, but you have to wear a mask to the gym and they're like super on top of enforcing it too. Like I, there was a guy on the treadmill the other day and he pulled it down just so he could breathe out of his nose. And immediately the guy working there was like, ah, put it back up. Like there's, oh, super... I wish you were doing that here. I would go back to the gym then. I, yes. I have to work out at home because there's a, as long as there's six foot social distancing here, they don't have to wear a mask. Oh God, that's awful. Like, it just doesn't, I mean, in a perfect world, that would be great, but you know, it's not, uh, nobody's going to stick to it. So yeah, no, but it's been good. And like, I don't think we've actually had, it's continued to decline here, which has been really cool. Great. So Leslie, I know, I know in the past you've, you've done some outreach and, and work with veterans who are trying to get into tech or, or infosec. Um, be curious to hear from your perspective what are some of the common themes that you see or things that people leaving the service who are now kind of tr wanting to transition to industry, what are some advice or things that they should focus on as a transition into the civilian world? Yeah. So first of all, cybersecurity in the military is there's overlap with cybersecurity in the civilian world, but there's a lot of differences too, especially in the certifications that are valuable, the technologies and, uh, 
just what's what's valuable to to cabin your skill set as an analyst and on your resume. So there's going to be some differences there. Obviously, the big push in the U.S. military is security plus, security plus, security plus, security plus, um, and CEH to some extent. And both of those certs have been kind of totally devalued in the civilian workforce. It's not bad to have them, but they're not something that you should be pushing super hard for to get your first cybersecurity job on the civilian side. Um, there's other certifications that might be more valuable, um, like OSCP, but you know it, it really depends on your individual story and career and where you're trying to go. Um, another thing that I see a lot is just really incongruous resumes with what's actually valuable to a technical hiring manager in the civilian sector. Um, Obviously, government resumes are nothing like civilian resumes in the United States, just like CDs in Europe are nothing like resumes in the United States, a totally different format. And so you've got to make sure that you reformat your resume appropriately. And there are on-base resources for people who are still in the military and getting ready to transition, of course, that will help you, you know, your career center, family readiness, things like that will help you write a resume that's more focused on the civilian side of things, but they aren't experts in IT or InfoSec or anything. So I highly recommend that you go to one of the clinics at an InfoSec conference, whether virtually or in person, when we can do that again, have somebody look at your resume and reformat it, restructure it to what people want to see on the civilian side of things in InfoSec in 2020, um, which is very, very different. So I do see a lot of focus on the wrong things in people's resumes. I think also, at least from my perspective, and I, I'd love to hear your your perspective as well on, on this, but as a hiring manager who is hiring someone from the service uh, and, and you end up making the hire, I, I think the man, hiring managers need to spend more time with these individuals sometimes to help them adjust to the culture and the politics, you know, the dynamics of, 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 a, of a corporation as opposed to the government or the military. Um, that's definitely something that I think managers need to spend that extra time on because the, the command structure may be different, the way you communicate or escalate up or work with other colleagues in different teams, it's, it's a little bit different. It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but I think it's different. And, and at least the members of the service I've hired, you know, it, it's very valuable to walk them through why things are done a certain way. And it may be an alien concept to them, but it's very valuable to talk them through that and, and, and more than once um, because habits are are hard to break and you have to really give that care and feeding on those on those cultural and political nuances that are that are different from the government so there are very few bureaucracies in the world that are bigger and more convoluted than the u.s military and the u.s government um if you talk, want to talk about the size of computer networks too like in we're talking about vast networks where you know responsibilities are, are held across many many disparate disjointed teams so um yeah so it's very very different to go into a corporate environment that's a little smaller or the bureaucracy is a little bit more flexible um it's important to have a voice you can you can learn to simply follow orders from people who are are appointed over you in the military and uh that that doesn't necessarily translate well into being a good individual contributor in the in the civilian workforce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as far as advice for someone who is wanting to eventually 
you know, transition back into the civilian world because I get this question a lot and I have not been in the military, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer it. But uh, what what things would you want people, I guess, or recommend that people focus on learning or, um, you know, just be cognizant of, I guess, as they transition? Here's the thing. Military cybersecurity training is actually a really, really, really good pipeline. If people are, are engaged in being a part of it and want to learn things, it's a good pipeline. There's not that many companies that have that good of a pipeline for taking somebody from no IT knowledge whatsoever, maybe not even owning a computer, to a cybersecurity expert. Like that's incredible. And that's that's something that employers should appreciate and try to emulate in their own environments. Now, the problem is there is that you're again dealing with that massive bureaucracy. So you only do you only see one little picture, you only see one little component of how everything works. In the, in the military when you're doing some kind of cyber related thing. And uh, you've got to try to understand the whole picture. That's the hard part, because if you've spent your entire military career only doing email, like only doing SharePoint, something like that, like you're, you're, you're not seeing the whole picture of cybersecurity. And most people in the civilian workforce who do cybersecurity have to be a little bit more well-rounded than that. We have to understand post security, we have to understand network security, we have to understand, you know, information protection policies, things like that, governance, risk, things like that. So in cloud and all these new technologies as well, um, those are all part of the picture. And you're going to have to understand a lot more wide arrays of things. I think that definitely makes sense. I mean, what I really like about hiring veterans as well is not only, you know, just just, you know, training they've gotten, but the the motivation that they bring to the table. Um, I, I know in the States, uh, our operations does quite a lot of veterans hiring, and we, we engage in a lot of these programs where um, I think they, they fund education, additional education for the individuals coming out of the service. And then actually, I think they will even fund one relocation for them um, to somewhere else in the country. Uh, so engage companies engaging in programs like this, it, it definitely is a great pipeline because think about the government has spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars training them in various skills. And it's up to the organization to really maximize and take advantage of that. And yes, there's going to be some learning curve and that investment the company has to make to transition them to the culture. But it's an investment by Uncle Sam. Why not take advantage of that? Yeah, it's a good pipeline. It builds people with a good skill set. And uh, yeah, and don't discount garden reserve people too. And that's not just US, that's UK too, um, Australia, Canada all the places that have cyber reserve programs, don't discount those people too, because they're going through the same training. Yeah, definitely. Even I, I know like, so I'm part of the Marine Corps Cyber Auxiliary and we're getting kind of a crash course in some of the way that they're structured as well. It's, it's really different. It's super eye-opening as someone who's never been in the military, because a lot of people that are in the program are either retired military or have had exposure to it. So <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's night and day in some aspects. I mean, related to this question, um, and, and it's also based on, you know, viewer questions for those who are not interested in going to the military, you know, out of high school and want to look for a program, a university program. And what do you guys think are the qualities in a program that people should be looking for when they want to get trained in a topic where maybe they don't have as much background on, you know, through middle and high school, middle school and high school? 
I think if you're looking for a specific university program, uh, finding one with a co-op program is really good. Uh, getting that learning on the job experience is really, really helpful, I think, while you're trying to learn a specific subject because a lot of times classroom can be really, really different from the working world. Can I be a little contentious for a second? Yeah, a absolutely. Bit? All right. So um, I'm a, a cybersecurity, explicitly cybersecurity programs make me nervous. Um, be very careful about them. Make sure that they have things like co-op programs. Make sure that they have well-rounded fundamental curriculum as well as cybersecurity specific stuff. Because what I'm finding and what I've been finding for the last 10 years of interviewing people out of cybersecurity bachelors and master's programs is that they lack basic fundamentals that they need to know to understand what they're doing with the security tools they've learned in the curriculum. And they're also not being incentivized and taught to keep their skills up. So um, I, I'm still a lot more trusting of computer science and network engineering curriculums than I am of cybersecurity curriculums. If you're going into a cybersecurity program, be really cautious to make sure that they're teaching you good network systems, computer science fundamentals, um, and not focusing on just teaching you how to hit buttons in, in cybersecurity tools. Do you feel that there's more value in going for a broader computer science degree versus a cybersecurity specific degree? I'm going to get beaten up on Twitter for saying this, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and I know a lot of people who are working very hard but to teach these programs. I know a lot of teachers who are teaching in those curriculums, but... I'm, I'm going to make a comment that'll get me even more beat up. I, I mean, I, I think a program needs to look beyond the technical skills as well, because what I find is the most lacking in any InfoSec professional are the soft skills, are the business acumen, how to navigate an organization. You can be the most technically smart person, but if you can't explain yourself to someone to get the support that you need to do something to fix a company, you're, you're, you're dead out of water. It's, yep. There's no point. There's no point. It doesn't matter how smart you are. So I would Ethics, even argue- writing writing, communications, um, maybe even finance and accounting. You need to understand if you're going to be spending money, how does that money, where does that money come from? Um, so I, I would even say, and it doesn't have, you know, the money doesn't have to come from ransomware. <laughs> um, I think, I think accounting is a little bit far. Like, yeah, I agree. Soft skills help, but like accounting, no. Well, I it depends it, what your aspirations are. If you want yeah. to be a CISO or something, no. If you want to be a CISO, yeah, for CISO, accounting sure. and finance. If you want but to if you want to be, uh, but if you want to be like an analyst, you probably don't need accounting, but you probably need to understand how business processes work. You should take at because, least a business admin course. Exactly. Yeah. So I would even argue if you want to get into infosec, you don't even need an infosec degree necessarily. You just need to show the curiosity and the ability to learn. And, 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 and to Gab's point, I think the co-op is so important because you get to see things in the real world, not just in a classroom. But if you want to go to college. Yeah. That's if you want to go to college. Yeah, that's college is not for everyone. Is it's, it's, you do not need it. Um, don't feel like you have to go and spend hundreds of thousands on a degree just to get anywhere. I didn't do it. I think other people on this podcast didn't go to university. Um, but if you do want to, that there, there is your advice, but do not feel like you have to have to go to university. It's not the only way it's finding out what works for you. If I had a kid and 17 year old kid right now, and they were thinking of what to do and they wanted to get into security, I'd tell them to get either a network engineering or a computer science degree with a minor in something else. 
and do some focus in their classes in security and things that they're interested in. But I would tell them masters in network engineering or computer engineering or computer science, and then a minor in something totally unrelated, physics or whatever, or English literature, you know, something, <laughs> something that'll carry you farther in the long term in life, you know? Yeah, we need we need more well-rounded infosec professionals. I was trying to make this case recently, but um, I was, I think, you know, even like a foreign affairs minor or something along those lines is really, really valuable going back to what we were talking about before with, you know, you have to kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on politically and what's going on in the world. So, um, I mean, I was looking at masters and people were like, oh, you should do computer science. And I was like, I know I don't have an undergrad in computer science, but I kind of want to do just like foreign policy and stuff like that. Learn more in that realm, you know? Actually, one of the really junior members of the team that I hired a couple of years ago, she she got a she had a degree in geopolitics, and and we hired her to do an infosec role because she was curious. She demonstrated the ability and desire to learn the topic, uh, and and she took it upon herself to read up on it and understand a little bit. So during the interview, she was very candid. Hey, I don't know all the technical stuff, but this is what I've read. This is what I understand. I'm like, that's all we need. Hired. I think it's really important to be honest in interviews too. Um, kind of to that point, if you don't know something, say so, and it'll it usually go everybody a lot of time. Yes, yes. But it'll go over better <laughs> than you pretending to know something and just being completely off base. Yeah, and and don't try to mansplain something to someone who knows more than you on the topic. I I've had uh, some interviewer, some managers tell me like they they interviewed all these nightmare candidates where they're technically really smart, but they were literally mansplaining to them how to do something, and they're just like, I wrote the book on that, buddy. <laughs> Wave that wand, Leslie. <laughs> okay. Taking out my anger at the screen here. People can't see me because they're on the audio. I've got a sparkly magic wand. I don't know where it came from, but it's on my desk. Anyway, yeah, it's really, really annoying. I've had candidates come in and try to tell me why my environment needed to be patched, or you know, like why, why, why my security wasn't good. Like, dude, there's reasons for why we do things in large corporations. Like, there's some systems that can't be patched today. It, it doesn't matter if our power goes out. You need to install the patches. Hey, the pat the patches <laughs> what are you doing? Are you trying to get a job? Are you trying to show off that you're the smartest person in the room? Like those are not the same thing. Any nightmare uh, interview stories besides uh, that that you guys want to share? I, I have a couple. I'll, I'll share maybe one or two. But interested if you got curious if you guys have had any experience in horrible interviews. I've never done interviews. Uh, we mostly just hire people off the bat. Like we reach out to them rather than them coming to us. Oh. But I have cases where <laughs> someone has, there was this dude who basically essentially tried to bully me for a good five years. And he's like, you don't know shit. You're never going to make it in the real world. You don't have a degree in our, cause he was like really into math. And I, I, I don't personally give a shit about math. I used to be really good at it, but I, <laughs> I fell out of practice because I obviously I can get computers to do it for me now. And he's like, oh, you don't know any, you don't know calculus to your, your full of shit. You don't know anything. You're never going to make it in the real world. And then a few, few uh, months later, or it was like a year later, he had finished his degree in, uh, in calculus or whatever. And he was like, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a job in security. Is your company hiring? And I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> Karma. Don't burn. I mean, it's like the people from high school, right? Like where they're like rude to you all high school. And then suddenly 
they're like sliding back into your DMs, like, "Hey, I see you're doing really well now." Like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, okay, thanks yeah. for sharing. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's like I got a divorce, and then like eventually, it's like, "Will you buy my essential oils?" And I'm like, "God damn!" <laughs> <laughs> Will you join my MLM? <laughs> <laughs> I was, well, you remember that quote from Bill Gates? Uh, he, I think he said it at some high school or college um, graduation. He said, you shouldn't make fun of nerds because you're, you're going to end up working for them. It is, it is the year of the nerd. Not even the year of the nerd. It is the century of the nerd. Yeah. Nerds anyway, are cool. It's yeah. still the century of the ultra rich, but we're in there somewhere. I mean, that's us. That's, that's our yeah, That's the nerds. <laughs> that's the nerds. Uh, you got no, Elon it's still Musk. the people who uh, inherited all the money from their, from their parents too. But yeah, I had a guy who uh, would not he 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 wanted to apply for a malware analyst job, and he was like a SEP admin. That's all he had ever done with malware was like administer SEP or McAfee or something. And we figured that out like in the first like his resume wasn't clear and we figured that out in like the first five minutes of the interview that he had never done any type of malware reversing and he didn't really understand how malware worked but it ended up being a, like an hour and 15 minute interview because he would not admit that he didn't know what malware reversing was or how to do it or anything about the topic like whatsoever <laughs> he was like no but i i let me tell you these things that i can learn how to do like it was like it's the weirdest sales pitch. It was such a weird flex. He's like, yeah, I can learn how to do that, no problem. Like, but, but you I, I do. <laughs> like you don't even do assembly. Like, well, yeah. it was really awkward. The funniest thing that happened wasn't even an interview. Um, it was someone who was spamming their resume and sent a letter, you know, an actual letter, like a cover letter and a resume and just spammed it to, to one of the offices. Um, and I think it was addressed to hire, like HR hiring manager or something. So it wasn't even for a specific role, wasn't even for a specific person, <laughs> just like a very general thing. So so when, when we got this letter in, in our office, um, the team just gave it to me because they knew I handled all the people stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'll take a look at it. And it was just so, the, the, the cover letter was extremely vague. It didn't even reference a specific role. It was basically trying to sell themselves and then when I looked at the resume itself, uh, it was obvious they were trying to get a tech role. Um, but then when I looked at the skill set, there was a section with skills. It listed Windows 97. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd be, he'd be perfect to work for the, the federal government. <laughs> so I, I just started laughing. I was just like, wow. So first of all, like they, it was the person that's in tech, but it wasn't very savvy to even check the website for a specific role. And then there's, there's a typo in the resume in the tech skills section. So it, it was just very <laughs> funny that someone did this and didn't have the awareness or the discipline to check for a typo like that. I don't know. I mean, I get that the online hiring process is really annoying and having to enter your information into every single website that you go to is annoying, but don't be super lazy about it. I mean, just spamming your vague resume with a cover letter that's not directed to anyone specific isn't really going to get you anywhere yeah i've had people also send me messages on linkedin and address me by the wrong name <laughs> looking that happens to me all the time they always spell my name wrong I'm like why can't you just take the time to spell my name right if you're asking me for a favor seriously i'm always marcus hutchkins <gasps> because apparently hutchins does not exist in the u.s 
Oh, I see. Because it, it's only Americans who do it. They just they they put the the K in there and the or or G on the end. And I'm like, what? 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 It's because our <laughs> education system stops teaching spelling in like second grade. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think our education system just stops teaching people how to do spell check and not just like an actual spell check, not just clicking spell check and grammar check on the on the computer. Mm. I think honestly, we can just sum it up by saying our education system stops. Yeah, <laughs> just stop there. <laughs> well, that's why I think you know, you, like to the comment we made earlier, university is not for everyone because university doesn't teach some. Not all university programs teach these life skills in a way either. I mean, university is a time to learn how to learn, but there's some things that you don't learn in university even you have to learn in in real life whether it's through failure or trying and making mistake and i think also in today's society in america people are very afraid of giving very candid feedback in the fear of offending someone or creating legal risk or a lawsuit because they're afraid of giving very candid feedback that might hurt someone's feelings yeah i don't know like I never learned how to do taxes or even what taxes really were until I had to start paying them. And I was like, what is this? I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, like, and I had a job for a long time, but like my parents did my taxes when I was like 15, 16, you know? So, um, yeah, I got to college and I was like, I don't understand this process. And then even then, like a lot of the tax, like personal finance classes and stuff were like restricted to finance majors. So I was like, well, I guess I just learn myself, whatever. It's not important. Uh, I I didn't go to university. I went, I guess the the British equivalent of high school is where I stopped. And I find that high school taught me all the useful skills, just not intentionally. I, I went to a school in a really rough area and people were just like absolutely horrible. And it taught me how to deal with shitty people, which is basically this industry. It's just dealing with shitheads all day, <laughs> every day. And uh, it taught me that skill. And then it taught me how to learn for myself. Cause it's like, you, you'd be sat in a class with like 30 kids and someone will be yelling like slurs across the classroom. Teacher can't, can't get a word in and you're not learning anything. And I'm like, well, I, I still want to learn. So I, I need to figure out how to do this for myself. So ultimately, it was high school that taught me how to learn by not teaching me anything. Yeah, I would say elementary school. When I went to elementary school, it wasn't in a great part of town. Similar similar situation to UTech where I had to use my passion and curiosity to learn myself because, yeah, you're right, because kids are being very disruptive or the teacher didn't care. I mean, I was very fortunate for the most part. Most of my teachers in elementary school really did care uh, and, and tried. Um, but I think other life lessons I learned in elementary school is even how to stand up for myself too. Um, you know, being the nerd, the socially awkward nerd, you get picked on. And I remember it was, it was really funny. There was this bully that always picked on me and a friend of mine. And one at the end of one day at school, he was picking on us. And, and, um, I think my friend and I just got really sick and tired of shit. So he was kind of like, um, you know, touching us and pushing us a little bit. So we just shoved them into the wall. And this was right in, right, right in the really busy time when everyone's going home. And people see this. And I, I remember seeing, hearing a kid yell, oh, shit, Larry just got beat up by nerds. And 
<laughs> this this guy never messed with us again. It was just hilarious. So that was kind of like a lessons learned. I mean, you should never resort to violence, but I think you, you I mean, we just we just kind of pushed him off to the side because he was picking on us, but it was just kind of funny and that kind of stuck in my head. I mean, the fact that I remember the guy's name after all these years, it just stuck with me. Yeah, my my parents kind of ingrained the whole violence doesn't solve anything thing. And for the most part, it doesn't. But in high school, I did find out that people will just pick on you until you until you punch them, and until then that's it. Up. They never, they never, they never touch you again. Mm -hmm. And I think violence doesn't solve anything in the real world, but in school, that's a that's a completely different <laughs> ball game. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think it's violence. I don't think it's the act of violence itself. I think it's the it's act. the standing up for yourself. Yeah, it's standing the act up of standing up. up. Yeah. 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 It's as long as you don't stand up for yourself, you're you're at that submission. It's but... the same on the internet, actually, with like yes, internet trolls. Yes. Like half of them, like you just need to walk away from them because they're not invested in it. They're just doing it for for to a, get a reaction. emotional high. Yeah, some people who are really dedicated to it are taking out their own feelings of inadequacy and their own abuse. I mean, on that's you. the main driving yeah. factor, I think. And sometimes the only way to get them to stop doing that is just to kick them in the pants and, and just show them that they are, they are the one who is failing at life, you know, and, uh, you know, they need to rework their own things. It's, it's a mix. You have to be able to identify the difference. There was a, a good thread about this on Twitter the other day. Uh, it was a study about, uh, Halo players, I believe. And they found that, um, poor skilled Halo players were more toxic towards women but the higher skilled ones were more accommodating and they they concluded that it was the toxicity did not come from uh the being the actually being better than the woman it came from people who were worse and were worried that that person posed a risk to their career mm -hmm. and that sounds like infosec <laughs> yeah and that's what i said is i said this explains the infosec industry i had a one time when one of my friends was doing a ctf and she killed it at the CTF. She was the only person who wasn't in a team. Everyone else was in teams of four or five people. She did it alone, come second. And early on in the CTF, she was having issues. It's a hardware hacking CTF and she's having issues with her hardware. And some guy comes alone to, you know, like kind of mansplain how hardware works. And it turned out actually the board was broken. The staff members gave her a new board and she's already like three hours of lost time by now. And she still comes in second. And then at the end, that guy who was on one of the teams she beat comes up to her and says, you, you couldn't have done this without me. Like my, my help was, uh, was important to your success. <laughs> and I think that's just the biggest explainer of people in InfoSec. It's, it's the insecurities. It's the feelings of inadequacy that someone is actually a threat to their career. I don't know who these people are competing with it. There's lots of jobs in cybersecurity, even in an economic downturn. There are lots of jobs in cybersecurity. If you work hard and you study and you learn an area of cybersecurity, you can get a job. It does help to be a decent human being and be cooperative and a good member of a team. I, mean, I think that's hired, the main thing. You don't even need skills. You just need to not be a shithead. If you're not getting hired, <laughs> it might be because you're a shithead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I my team there's a there's zero tolerance for for shithead behavior like I, we don't care how smart you are or how indispensable yeah. your technical skills are if you you're a dick and you can't take feedback to adjust you're out i mean it's zero tolerance and and it, it's important to say that too because you don't want a culture where people's like oh 
to like make basically make excuses for the person. Oh, they're really technically smart. Yeah, you just have to deal with it. That person will do whatever. That is just zero talent. That is not acceptable. Y'all, if, if you take one thing out of this podcast today, I think it's uh, if you are trying to get a job in cybersecurity and it is not happening and you are in some area where there are cybersecurity jobs or you can get a job remotely, you got to take a look at your things other than technical skill. You've got to take a look at yourself and how you cooperate with other human beings and how you associate with them, because it's probably that there's lots of jobs out there. Now, granted, some people live in, in job deserts in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing out there. And I understand it. And I emphasize tremendously and that's horrible. But if you're in the U.S. near a major metro area and you're applying for infosec jobs and you haven't gotten one, you need to take a look at your soft skills again. Yeah, those soft skills are really come out during the interview process. They do. I mean, a lot of times how I see it is, you know, your phone interviews, your technical interviews are all kind of your screening. And then, you know, when you have that final in-person, it's to see like, okay, does this person have people skills? Like, can they sit in a room with me and work on things, you know? So. So one viewer question we've got is who do we follow on Twitter to keep in touch with InfoSec? Um, me, it's basically everyone I follow on Twitter. So if you want to go to my following list and click through that, 99% <laughs> of those are people I follow to keep in touch with InfoSec. There's a bit too much politics there sometimes, but that can be helpful too. Yeah, I don't, there's so many good ones. I'm just sitting here like, I don't know if I can list them all. Um, I don't know, I'm a big fan of Kevin Beaumont, so... I was gonna say Kevin too. Yeah, <laughs> stole it. Two shoutouts today. Kevin, Our we love you. Our favorite. Part. He's just so nice. He is, and well, he's, what it is. his write-ups are just really, really good too, and he's always really on top of things. So I yeah, appreciate it. Like, he's like underrated. He's like the most underrated tweeter, twitter. That there is, that there is like an infosec really if you're not following him you should be following him yeah definitely i have a list him. too um i have a list called pancake short stack that's um open in public on my twitter so you can look at that i think those are mostly good sources of infosec news so i actually don't use twitter really for infosec news i really just use twitter to follow what, like what's going on in some of my friends lives who happen to be in infosec um so if you go through my twitter like follow list um it's not that big and half of it you, you people won't even recognize as infosec or tech related because I, I actually don't use twitter to follow infosec news i mean i'll see sometimes things that my friends will like or retweet and that's kind of like and you know the peripheral of what's going on in infosec so I, I know a little bit what's going on but i actually don't use twitter for that purpose there's a lot of this isn't twitter either but as far as getting information there are a lot of really good subreddits too and i mean i know like people either love or hate reddit but i mean there's just there are some good ones there's network security there's some really 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 good intelligence ones if you want to stay on top of some of the kind of global affairs stuff but i just i made like a multi-reddit of just like all the different technology ones that I find interesting and there's some really really good stuff on there um you know this this question comes from a viewer and, and it's kind of addressed to all of us uh, hi I'm interested in understanding some software engineering best practices to improve the security of applications thank you oh my god I have a book behind me that's like perfect for that it is the art of software security assessment I was interviewing for a job and they were like, read this book and I bought it and it's like this thick 
but it is phenomenal and it goes into everything that you could ever want to know. Sorry, I'm a book lover. The other side, I guess, is the the figuring like the the keeping in touch with all the different attacks against software. And that way you can you can consider that attack while you're writing the code. But uh obviously there's a there's a lot of ways code can be insecure and it's it's very hard to to write good code. That's something that takes uh it's a long process of realizing where your code fails the most and then building tools to deal with that. I think just start at the basics, read about the common attacks against software, and then just build up your knowledge until you can you can be at that level where you're writing custom custom compilers to to squash compiler bugs. And understand you'll never be an expert expert at both like software engineering and exploitation and vulnerability, uh, you know, hunting and and things like that. You can't you can't do all those things awesomely. Yeah. You need to have relationships with people who are good at the niches that you're not an expert in. So if you are a software engineer, you should have good bug bounty programs and good relationships with your cybersecurity experts, you know, vulnerability researchers, exploit developers, things like that. That's that's what you have to do is you have to have a good network of people assisting you in, in that process. Yeah, my, my answer is actually similar to yours, but it's not about relationships. It's don't reinvent the wheel. If there is a module for authentication and authorization, please don't write your own. Just leverage it. Just use something else. It makes it easier to maintain your code, to maintain your application. And I bet the folks at Oracle or IBM or you know name whatever provider uh, you know your company's identity platform is, I'm sure they write a better authentication and authorization mechanism than you from scratch. So don't reinvent the wheel, leverage something that already exists. It just makes your life a lot easier, saves time, and it's gonna be more secure in the longer run and, and just easier to update from a security standpoint. What video games are, is everybody playing right now? Still Overwatch, I think. Overwatch all the time. I, ha yeah. I have been so busy, I haven't been playing games. I tried to do Microsoft Flight Simulator and I, I didn't want to get a joystick because I didn't want to buy like a $200 joystick and have to lug it back to the States. But, but so I tried, it was all, oh, I'll just play on my keyboard. Well, the problem <laughs> is you need the full size keyboard and I only have a three quarters keyboard. So I don't have the numpad mm -hmm. for the yoke. So I was like, oh shit. So I ordered a, a separate wireless numpad and the latency on it is so bad that the plane is, I can't keep the plane <laughs> stable. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm not playing this until I get back to the States. Oh, I found out that uh, train simulator, there's like two train simulators actually are a thing today too. My coworker is like super into it because he research, researches train vulnerabilities. And oh, there's cool. like, it's like a whole thing. It's like flight simulator, like perfectly re rendered countryside. And like, there's like the low graphics version and the high graphics version and the more technical train manipulation and control version and like the, the more simplistic train control version. Like it's a whole, it's like a whole thing. I never do. Have you seen the economy flight simulator? I don't know if it's real or not. I saw some no, screenshots on Twitter. It's, a, it's real. Uh, like. Passenger, and you just sit in economy for, for it's real time. <laughs> no. so it's like 16 hours. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on Steam. I, Dude, I can't no, remember what it's called. That. I don't know. I'm not going to get a plane for a long time. I need that yeah. nostalgia. I need, I need to feel like I'm living. I feel like such a snob. I haven't flown economy for like almost a year now. <laughs> Because you are a snob. Have you flown anywhere in a year? 
Yeah, I, I oh, okay. flew to Europe. I flew to oh, Europe yeah, recently. True. I that got my visa recent. and flew yeah. and I, I was I was flying uh, back in March and then I, I I flew here about a month ago and I've been taking the train around. Um, so yeah, and I'm gonna be taking a flight to Czech Republic in two weeks. I do economy for anything less than five hours. Then if it's long haul, like whenever I fly UK to US, I do first class because just you, you can't spend. Well, I mean, you can spend 12 hours in economy, but it is it is not a good experience. As a fellow tall person, I am yeah. lucky. <laughs> I sit there with my knees cramped into the back of the seat in front of me for how Yeah, like if you're over six foot, like I guess a lot of viewers won't know this, but planes are made for people who are six foot and shorter, at least economy is. So if you're over six foot like us, you spend the entire flight with your knees being ground down by the seat in front of you. And it is not a good experience. You end up with like legit, like I've had abrasions on my knees before oh, yeah, from so. sitting well, That's there. why like, if you do have to sit in an economy, you have to look for that, depending on the plane, you have to look for that seat that is right behind the exit row where there's two seats in front of you instead of three. So there's like a little bit of a gap. So if you sit on the aisle window seat, you can actually put your legs out. You well, try, the exit but rows are, really uh, they're wider anyway because you have to you have to fit through. So exit row is like the only seat I will sit in, or the the front row bulkhead. Although that one's weird because you don't have the tray or anything, so you you just have to put your drinks on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of just sitting there with all this space in front of you, like what is going yeah. on? Um, as far as the video games go, I've been playing the original Five Nights at Freddy's again because oh, no kidding, yes, that's too scary for me, dude. It's like it's like three dollars on Steam. It's amazing. So I've been playing that. It's been really fun. I want to play back through them. I got the uh, books because I was, I'm a big fan. So I was going to read the books around Halloween, but I don't know. It was just some nostalgia there. But yeah, I was playing that. And then if you really want to time sync, there's a game called House Flipper. And like, you literally, <laughs> a, literally you just redo HGTV. houses. Dude, I you love it. <laughs> I love it. But you literally like have to clean up these houses and then like sell them virtually. And it's, a huge time sink like it's horrible but i'm obsessed with it so awesome the week of lockdown uh, tinker sec conv convinced me to buy elder schools online uh, <laughs> i actually convinced me to buy an xbox one to play it on with him too so like i invested all this money but we've been playing it ever since then and like i beat like every single one of the quests in like this five-year-old game with him like it's ridiculous. Like his whole family plays too. It's probably been like 700 hours or something ludicrous oh like that. <laughs> like, oh. Okay, so that's all we've got uh, for today. Thank you for joining us, Leslie Tran and Gabs. Um, if you have questions for the next episode, we have a Mawatech Podcast subreddit and we also have hashtag Mawatech Podcast on Twitter.